People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And today we've got an author interview. We've been joined on the line from London, Laura Shepard Robinson, the debut author of an historical novel called Blood and Sugar, published by Mantle. Welcome to our studio, Laura. Very much. Great It's such a great uh, thrill to have you on the on, on our show. From the time I received a copy of your book Blood and Sugar, I've been looking forward to experiencing the novel, throwing myself into the deep end of British and world history, and I have to say that it was. A wonderful reading experience and as soon as I started reading the book I said I've got to interview Laura this is this is this is an author who has to be on our show so welcome thank you so much I'm going to ask you to first introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms okay um, my name's Laura I'm 42 years old. I worked in politics before I started writing my book. Um, and I left my job in politics about two years ago. And um, actually more like three years ago. And I did an MA in creative writing. Um, and on that MA, I wrote the first draft of Blood and Sugar. And now the book is published and it's been... Read people like me who are interested in history. We are familiar with your publisher Mantle, who also publishes C.J. Sansom, and so we come to expect really world-class historical fiction from Mantle. And now your book is out, and it's under the Mantle imprint. How did you come to be a writer from working in politics for a long time? And your, your, when you studied, you you studied. Uh, you have an MSc in political theory from the London School of Economics. How did you move from politics to novel writing? Um, I'd always done a lot of writing in my career in politics. I'd always quite enjoyed the speech writing and article side of things. And it had always been in the back of my mind that maybe one day when I was a you know, had enough of the politics that I would see if I could write a novel. Um, so it was kind of for about 10 years, it was in the back of my mind that it was something I'd really like to do one day. And um, eventually I just decided to bite the bullet and see if I could do it. And we're very thankful for that decision to bite the bullet because you've written oh, one okay. book so far <laughs> that's really, it really is putting you on the map. Blood and sugar. Can you give us an outline of the novel? Set the context and set the story up. But obviously, this is it's a it's it's, it's a murder mystery. It's a who done it. So you can't give too much away. But context and just like the springboard into the book. So um, my main character uh, is called Captain Harry Corsham. The book is set in. 1781 in the town of Deptford, which was then 
a slaving port about five miles from London on the River Thames. And Harry has just returned from the American War of Independence. Um, and he's a war hero. He's about to go into a career in politics. He has um, a beautiful, rich society wife. And everything in his life is um, going very well for him. Uh, he, in his youth, was an advocate for the abolition of slavery, but he's since kind of taken a path of conventional respectability. And his world gets turned on its head when he has a visit from the sister of his oldest friend, who is himself a passionate abolitionist, and his friend has disappeared in Deptford. And his friend was investigating uh, a massacre on board a slave ship, which um, has the potential to do huge damage to the British slaving industry. And Harry, for various reasons in their past, cannot rest until he finds out what's happened to Tad, his friend. That's a perfect setting. And that was enough to sell me on the book. And... Uh, That sale has given me a lot of reading. I'd say not so much enjoyment, but uh, a great experience, a lot to think about, and a really great mystery to follow. We are in conversation with Laura Shepard-Robinson. She's the author of Blood and Sugar. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've got the great thrill and pleasure of speaking to debut author Laura Shepard-Robinson. She's the author of Blood and Sugar. It's set in the 1780s in London and surrounding towns, focusing on the slave trade. Laura, what drew you to England in the 1780s and the slave trade? I'd always had quite a pattern for the 18th century, um, I and I think it's, it's there aren't enough books set in the 18th century, so I decided to write one. Um, and one of the things that I love about that period is that, on the one hand, you've got a great flowering of these modern Enlightenment values, um, values that underpin a lot of our political ideas today, but you've also, at the same time, got quite a brutal and, pr and primitive society. It's a society that in some ways is very familiar and in some ways very alien. And I felt that that, um, that brutality was um, a good era for writing crime. Um, and I sort of thought that slavery really encapsulated that almost that the hypocrisies of the 18th century um, where you've got um, a a society that is exploring ideas of universal human rights, but at the same time practicing slavery. Um, and I, I suppose I wanted to write the book because I'm really ashamed of that part of, of our history. And um, I, I was taught about it in school, slavery, but it was very much through the prism of William Wilberforce and slavery's eventual abolition which was presented as a huge stride forward for modernity and enlightenment. Um, and our active participation in the slave trade for nearly three centuries was sort of skipped over a bit. And I think it remains 
quite an uncomfortable subject um, that is too little understood. You, you do bring the brutality of the slave trade alive in the book. Uh, and as you said, it, it is a very uncomfortable part of history. It's one of the great crimes against humanity, the transatlantic slave trade. Let's introduce some of your, I'm, I'm going to call them masterful creations because these characters are so good. Um, complex and contradictory. They are wonderful characters to enliven a book. So let's, you've mentioned a bit of Captain Henry Corshan and a little bit about his wife Caroline. So let's look at some of the others. John Caesar. Caesar John. So Caesar John is, um, he is, um, himself a former slave. He was, um, born in Britain, um, and became, um, like a little page boy, which a lot of the, um, the grand ladies of the time would, would have a page, a black page boy who would, um, um, they almost treated like a like a one of the family, but at the same time more like a more like a pet. It was a horrible, horrible system. And he has then since grown up. And the problem was when when these little boys would grow up was they often got put out on the street. And Caesar John has himself um, turned to uh, not entirely honest ways of surviving in in Britain. As as a as a free man. It's so interesting that you bring Caesar John and a number of other freed slaves into the novel because I think the presence of black people in British or English society is often overlooked. And in a novel like this, you can redress that imbalance. Yes, and I think it's it's important do that um people i think there's a great misconception um that that london in the 18th century uh was a purely white city and it just isn't true um there was probably about 5000 um black people living in london around the time of my book um as well as um indian sailors and particularly um so you know london was actually a you know quite a multicultural city at the time Looking at other characters in the book, um, Napier Smith. He's a bad man. Um, Napier Smith is the chairman of um, a, a body called the West India Lobby, which was um, a grouping in Parliament of men who were involved in the slave trade in one way or another. Some of them were plantation owners, some of them were slave merchants. And they were a very powerful body because where there is money, there is political power. And they fought a bitter rearguard action for many decades to prevent the abolition of slavery. And Napier Smith is, he's, he's very young. He's inherited that hundreds of thousands of acres of sugar plantation and he will, Harry's Harry's mission to find out what happens to Tad brings him into conflict with the West India lobby and Napier Smith has very dark plans for Harry. Is Napier Smith based on real people? Um, there is, there was a, um, 
a slave trader, a very wealthy slave trader, um, whose whose son inherited his his millions at a very young age, and I sort of loosely based it on on him, but um, but he is he is essentially my creation. The, but the West Indies lobby was real. Absolutely, yes, the, and 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 they probably the slave trade would have been abolished twenty years earlier had it not been for their efforts in Parliament. We are in conversation with Laura Shepard Robinson. She's the author of Blood and Sugar, a book she wrote after twenty years in active an active role in the political sphere in the UK. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with Laura Shepard Robinson. She's the author of Blood and Sugar. It's an historical murder mystery. It's published by Mantle. And we are continuing our introduction over the airwaves to some of the memorable and powerful characters that people this book. Peregrine Child, the, one of the Deptford, uh, the Deptford Magistrate, he is a very, very complex person and a very human creation. I'm glad you think so. I'm terribly fond of, of Peregrine Child, even though he is in many ways, he's quite compromised. He um, he drinks too much. He's quite corrupt. Um, but I think fundamentally, um, he 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 tries to do good in an imperfect world, um, and without without himself being put too much uh, too much in the firing line. He's not her- he's not a heroic in any way whatsoever. But he. Um, and, and his con- concept of justice is perhaps not one that we would recognize ourselves. Um, but I am quite fond of him. And then one that's a character who is very clearly on one side of the good and evil divide, the ship surgeon, James Brabazon. Yes, Brabazon uh, I'm not fond of. <laughs> Although I did, you know, I, I, I thought he, he was quite an interesting character to write. Um because he is somebody who sees himself as, in, you know, he's a, he's a clever, scientific man, um, and he is also uh, just appallingly racist, but and and is is guilty of terrible, terrible crimes. But he doesn't see himself as as a monster. He sees himself as this, you know, someone who is um, a liberal-minded man. And I kind of I wanted to get inside the heads of people who saw absolutely nothing wrong in the terrible things that they were doing. The name James Brabazon for this doctor was that totally made up because I have interviewed twice an author with that very name. Absolutely, <laughs> it was completely made up, and um, I have subsequently discovered that there is an author called James Brabazon, um, which which was quite a shock. Um, but no, it was it is in no way based on anybody uh, at all. It was uh yeah, I, I came across the, the name and and loved it. The uh, the surname and um and the first name came separately. Uh-huh. Then the last character I'm gonna ask you to speak about also once again very complex. 
she elicits a lot of sympathy, but also other emotions as well. Cinnamon, the slave girl. Yes, yeah, so Cinnamon um, is a slave who is owned by the mayor of Deptford, and she desperately wants her freedom and will do um, anything to get it. And she she is an interesting character because um, I d- she, she has a lot of agency, even at the same time as she is a slave, so her agency is limited. And the, the laws regarding slavery in Britain at that time were um, were very ambiguous. It was some people believe because of a famous court case where a uh, a slave sued his master and and won in the courts that slavery was um, no longer legal in Britain. But actually, the law was was extremely ambiguous, and slaves continued to be owned. Um, for many years after this court case, so it was a, it was a time of real kind of legal change and legal uncertainty for for slaves in in Britain. And one of the things which Cinnamon has to um, guard against is being sent back to her master's plantations. And there were actually lawyers like Tad, who was one of the characters in the book, who would find out that slaves were being put on these ships and taken back to the plantations and would serve injunctions on their owners and and fight legal cases to make sure that they could stay in Britain where, um, for all its faults, it was uh, a better place to be than the plantation colonies. Uh, these characters come so alive off the page that no one is straightforward. No one is simple and uncompromised. Every single character has the complexity of a real person. And then another character is just the city of London. You have, you, you, you've set the book at a time when London was in the early industrial stages of her development and all the surrounding towns and villages are slowly being gobbled up by this expanding uh, urban centre. And the town of Getford, which is in the book quite away from the, from the city of London, but today it's really almost part of the middle part of the core of London. It's, it's right there by um, the Canary Wharf Dockland development. And then Greenwich, which is also a little bit further out, you, you've recreated the 1780s, London in the 1780s. I'd, I'd like you just to talk about the actual town, the actual city, and all this change that was happening within the city. Yeah, I and mean, it, was, it was such a time of change, the expansion of London. I mean, people, it, they would be so so amazed to see London today because at the time it, they could barely conceive um, that London could possibly get big enough to gobble up some of the villages that today we, we would think of as, as very central parts of London. Um, and um, I, I wanted to set the book um, in Deptford because of its proximity to the sort of the seat of, of power in Parliament and the vested interests defending slavery um and I, I i just i love the 
that 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 part of writing a historical novel, that recreation of the setting, um, and and London was, you know, such a evocative city um, in terms of the sights and the smells, and and so I absolutely love that part of writing historical fiction, and I'm really I'm really glad that 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 came across in in such an evocative way. Uh, I kept going to Google Maps to see where Deptford is and then where Greenwich is because I'm, I'm a Johannesburg native. I, 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 I've been to London once and I was quite surprised that Deptford is so close to the core of London today. It really is the core. But here they were taking horses and traveling. Uh, and they would factor in the amount of time they would need to get from, you know, from Mayfair or wherever it was in London to get to Deptford or to Greenwich. Something else that you've done so beautifully is you've researched so many details of the period. The, the, the fear that people had for the forms of African magic that they saw the, the slaves or the former slaves practicing, the torture implements, or the structure of trading syndicates, and also the descriptions of the ships, both the slaving ships which would go to the coast of Africa and then the Indiamen which would go to the far, you know, to go to India and the details about the construction of these huge, huge vessels. And that's just a tiny fraction of the research that you've done for this book. How did you do your research? How did you know what to research? How did you know where to stop and what to investigate further? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the research part is, is so much fun that I have to be quite careful to rein myself in. Um, I, what I usually do, well, certainly what I, what I've done with both this book and the, the book I'm writing at the moment is I will, I will read, um, two or three books very intensely on the particular subject that I'm writing about. And then, I will write the book and try not to do any research at all and then do more more research for the details at the end but I try very hard not to do, not to continuously research because that way madness lies I would never get any writing done even in the structure of the murder mystery you use so many historical details to push the narrative forward um, there's a very tightly plotted uh, narrative here, and it's a mystery, and it's excellently executed. I, I I wouldn't know where to start myself, but even the the historical points that drive the narrative forward, not just the flourishes to 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 polish the, and give uh, authenticity to the book, but the details that propel the plot forward. The research that you must have done for that was also just your knowledge of the 1780s. How do you approach the layering of your murder mysteries and all these details? And there's so many intertwining plot lines. It's almost like an Agatha Christie. How do you go about just plotting that so that you get this beautiful, very intelligent, sophisticated structure and all the threads come together? Well, it was a case of um, the the overarching um, mystery was was fairly 
straightforward in its conception. Um, and the, the part I, that I found much harder was layering the various subplots of different characters around that, that mystery. And I am, I am quite a planner. I do, I, I write, I write terribly long plans for my books. They then change as I go along and, um, don't really resemble the plan by the end of the book. But I, I find it very hard to get started if I don't know where I'm going. So I do, I do plan quite a lot. Um, and, I think often in the execution, it's just about a matter of sensing what works and what doesn't and, um, and, and just kind of trial and error, trying to get it right, trying to, um, to balance the different components of plot. But I, although it's probably not the part of, of writing that comes most naturally to me, I work very hard at it, um, to try and get it right because I, I think plot is, is a very important part of, of any book. And, um, so I, yeah, I, I, I'm very glad you, you had such nice things to say about it because it was something I worked very hard at. It was, I, I knew that I wouldn't be able to predict the outcome at the end of the book. And I, I was very thankful for that because it really, uh, it really kept me at the turning the pages, but the, the plot was, so masterful. Thank goodness there's a list of characters at the beginning of the book because it is tightly plotted and I, I needed to refer, to refer back to, to all the, all the characters quite regularly because it is so intense. Then this is a book with the title Blood and Sugar. It has to be about this, the slave trade. And there is an explosion of books on this topic. Just a few weeks ago, I mentioned the book Washington Black on this show that was shortlisted for the, the, the Booker Prize last year. What do you want Blood and Sugar to bring to the discussion? I suppose um, there are so many excellent books upon this topic. There aren't very many books that look at the British end of the slave trade. Um, and particularly, you know, those kind of economic and political factors that, that drove the, the entire trade. And I, I wanted to explore that. Um, I, I like crime novels. I wanted to do it in, in the context of, of a crime novel. But at the same time, I, I really wanted to, um, explore that, those elements of our history because I think, I, I, I just don't think we write about it enough. Um, and I, I think it's almost, it's our responsibility to, to face that, that side of our history and, and, and properly understand it. Having researched a period of history that has a very dark, it's, it's a very dark part of history. And having worked for 20 years in the political arena, do you notice patterns repeating themselves? I mean, I think that, so the campaign to abolish slavery, um, from a purely um, political point of view of someone who has worked in politics, was an incredibly successful campaign because they really turned public opinion around. Um, at the time Blood and Sugar is set, most people never gave slavery a second thought. Um, and if they did, it was to appreciate how cheap, sugar and tobacco now were. Um, 
And so they turned around a largely indifferent public in the course of, of about 20 years. And so, so from that point of view, um, I, I found it very interesting. Um, I think the hypocrisies of the time, um, we now kind of look back and sort of, you know, how could they ever have thought that was acceptable? Part of the reason was because it was happening on the other side of the world. Um, and so it was easy for people to, to ignore. Um, and although I think the Atlantic slave trade is, is a, you know, an, a unique evil and, and should be understood as such, we're not short of things happening on the other side of the world today that we choose not to think about, whether it's, you know, where the clothes that we wear are made, what the conditions are like, or the phones that we use. So I, I don't think Georgian Britain has any monopoly on hypocrisy. The, the quotes that an author puts at the front of their book or at beginnings of different sections of the book says a lot about how they view their book and how they wanted to connect to wider, the wider discourse through printed letters and printed words. You start off each section of the book with a quote from Baruch Spinoza. Why? So why? Yeah. Um, part of the, although this is a book about slavery, it's also a book about, um, the things that people do in extremists. And, um, Spinoza writes a lot about concepts of freedom and emotion. And it just seemed to really tie in to the theme of the book. Um, he explores, um, whether a person who is who is in the grip of emotion um, can truly be said to be free, can be making their own decisions. And a, a big theme of the book is it, the damaging effects of slavery upon the characters who came into contact with it, whether that be the slave ship sailors or the slaves themselves. In the historical record, there is so much of what we would now know as as post traumatic stress disorder, and and so it, the, the Spinoza quotes just seem to me to um, encompass so many different aspects of both the theme and the the plot of the book. He, he's also an early Enlightenment or beginning of rational philosophy, um, so it, it also ties in very nicely with the contradictions between the beginning of enlightenment and the barbarity of the slave trade. Yes, absolutely. Then you've mentioned agency when we were talking about cinnamon, that the slave, the slave lady. Women are very well represented in your book, Blood and Sugar. They are major characters and you've invested them with great agency and power to determine the course of not only their lives, but the men in their lives and their families' lives as well. And I'd like just, I'd, I'd like to ask you to talk about the women in your novel. I'm glad that you, um, that you brought that up. I mean, because this is a book that is set, um, a lot of the action is around what happened on the slave ship. There are a lot of men in the book. Um, but so the, the three main women characters in the book, I, I really wanted, you know, they, they, 
there were less of them than the men, but I think they consequently needed to be more vivid and 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 more more powerful. Um, so Caro, my hero's wife, she is um, she's very intelligent. She's quite political herself. Um, there are a number of um, real life Georgian women who she is a sort of composite of. Um, because there were certainly very intelligent, very politically engaged women around at that time. Um, she, her and Harry have a difficult marriage. It, um, it isn't, um, it isn't the most romantic of marriages, but it is, they are a, a political and an economic unit. And, um, she, Harry, depends on her uh, a lot at one point in, in the book. Um, then Cinnamon we've talked about. Um, but one of my, one of my favorite characters, um, is a former slave who is now a prostitute named Jamaica Mary. And Jamaica Mary originally only had one scene in the book, but I, I just, I fell in love with her. And so I gave her her own, um, plot, subplot in the book. Um, so that I could just write more scenes with Jamaica Mary because um, she she was so much fun to write. We're in conversation with Laura Shepard Robinson, the author of Blood and Sugar. We'll continue the conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We. In conversation with Laura Shepard Robinson, the author of Blood and Sugar, it's published by Mantle, and it is available in the shops right now. Last two questions, Laura. You are an author, so you're obviously a, a, a reader as well. What do you read? Well, um, I, I do in, like the historical crime genre. Um, I love the books of C.J. Sansom. I love um, Andrew Taylor, who's another um, historical crime writer. Uh, outside of historical crime, I I love the books of Hilary Mantel. Um, uh, she she makes me feel so inadequate as a writer, but she is so so wonderful. And um, I, I cannot wait for the third novel in her Wolf Hall series, which I, I think is coming either this year or next year, um, and I'm just, I'm so looking forward to that. And the other writer who has been a huge influence on me and whose books I love is John le Carre. Um, and I I love the fact that he writes genre fr- fiction, but I think he's at least as talented as any um, writer of literary fiction. He, he demonstrates that um, you can have wonderful prose and wonderful characters and still have a gripping plot that, that carries the action along. So, I mean, I adore John le Carre. And then, final question. You did mention earlier on that you are working on something at the moment. So, in between all the publicity around the release of Blood and Sugar, would you like to say anything about the book that you're currently working on? I would. So, the, the main character of my second book, which is called The Daughters of Night, uh, is Caro, Harry's wife in Blood and Sugar. Um, it's a book about 
women and their place in Georgian society. Um, I won't say too much. It's a work in progress, um, but it's um, it's a it's a lot about the kind of um, the image, the, the masks and images that people uh, project of themselves and the reality behind those. So um, it features there's masquerades, prostitutes, uh, there's a tortured painter, there is a collector of classical artifacts who runs a philosophical sex club and murder so it's very much set in georgian london it is yes it's um it's set a year after blood and sugar and uh there are as well as caro herself there are a number of other recurring characters from blood and sugar it's been an absolute pleasure having you join us for the show today Thank you so much for your time. And also, thank you so much for the book Blood and Sugar for introducing these wonderful characters to the world of letters. And we look forward to having a copy of your new book in our hands and enjoying reading it when it comes out. And hopefully we can have you join us back here on Chai FM, People of the Book, and discuss another chapter of Georgian history. Thank you so much for having me on. That's been really enjoyable. Thank you. That was our conversation, our interview with Laura Shepard-Robinson, the author of Blood and Sugar. It's published by Mantle. And on the front cover, there's a shout-out from C.J. Sansom, one of our other very, very favorite uh, historical crime writers. And C.J. Sansom says on the cover, page turner of a crime thriller, this is a world conveyed with convincing, terrible clarity, and I can I can second that. For the rest of the show, I'm just going to go through a number, just a number of books that are available that uh, I've curated as a as a reading list because of the power of 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 each of these books. The first one is called The Librarian of Auschwitz, and it's public. It's written by Antonio Iturbe. It's translated from the Italian and it's available in the shops based on the experiences of real life Auschwitz prisoner Dieter Krauss this is the incredible story of a girl who risked her life to keep the magic of books alive during the Holocaust 14 year old Dieter is one of many imprisoned by the Nazis at, at, at Auschwitz displaced along with her mother and father from their home in Prague first to the capital city's ghetto then northward to the Theresian settlement, and then finally to Auschwitz in Poland, Dieter is adjusting to the constant terror that is life in the camp. When Jewish leader Freddie Hirsch asks Dieter to take charge of the eight precious volumes the prisoners have managed to sneak past the guards, she agrees, becoming the librarian of Auschwitz. From one of the darkest chapters of human history comes an extraordinary story of courage and hope. Uh, this book follows the publishing phenomenon, which was the Tattooist of Auschwitz. Um, what is interesting about the copy that I'm holding in my hands is that the publishers, Macmillan, decided to actually print this book locally in South Africa. They did not just bring stock in from overseas. So the copy that I'm holding was printed in South Africa. Uh, and then just to start with, just to 
yeah, read that um, a letter written by Dieter Kraus, who is the subject of the book. Dear reader, I want to tell you how the book you're holding came into being. Some years ago, the Spanish author Antonio Iturbe was searching for someone who could tell him about some details about the books on the on the children's block in the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. He received my internet address and we started exchanging emails. His were short, apologetic questions and mine long, detailed answers. But then we met in Prague and for two days I showed him where I grew up and where I played in a sandbox and went to school and the house that we, my parents and I, left forever when we were sent to the Theresian ghetto by the Nazi occupants. The next day, we even travelled to Theresian itself. Before we parted, Tony said, Everyone knows about the biggest library in the world, but I'm going to write a book about the smallest library in the world, and its librarian. This is the book that you are holding. Of course, he wrote it in Spanish, and this is a translation. He used much of what I told him, but he also diligently collected facts from other sources. Still, despite the historical correctness of the narrative, it is not a documentary. It is a story born both from my own experiences and the rich imagination of the author. Thank you for reading and sharing it. Yours, Dieter Krauss. The book is The, the, the Librarian of Auschwitz by the Spanish author Antonio Iturbe, and it's the, starter, it's the story of Dieter Krauss, who was the librarian of Auschwitz. We'll be back with a few more titles. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book I want to talk about is also non-fiction. It's by Peter Frankopan, and it's called The New Silk Roads, The Present and Future of the World. It's published by Bloomsbury. Peter Frankopan wrote a book called The Silk Roads in 2015, and it became an instant classic. It was a, ra- it was a major reassessment of world history, compelling us to look at the past from a very different perspective the history of the world from the perspective of the Silk Road and the connections between the West and the East. The new Silk Roads brings the story up to date, addressing the present and future of a world that is changing dramatically. Following the Silk Roads eastwards from Europe through China by way of Russia and the Middle East, the new Silk Roads provides a timely reminder that we live in a profoundly interconnected world, In an age of Brexit and President Trump, the themes of isolation and fragmentation permeate the West, and they stand in a sharp contrast to events that are unfolding right now along the Silk Roads, where ties have been strengthened and mutual cooperation established. With brilliant insight, Peter Frankopan takes a fresh look at this intricate networks of relationships and assesses the global reverberations of continual shifts in the center of power. This book is important, and he is ultimately hopeful. He asks us to reread who we are and where we are in the world, and shows how our livelihoods are so dependent on the connections, which he calls the new Silk Roads. The next book is a South African history. It's called The Rise and Demise of the Afrikaners, and it's by the world-acclaimed historian of the Afrikaner people, Herman Giliomir. The book is published by Tafelbach, and we've come to expect great nonfiction from Tafelbach. 
Herman's previous book, The Afrikaners, Biography of a People, was described as magisterial by The Economist magazine. Here, the acclaimed historian explains the dramatic ascent and the possible demise of a small minority group that dominated 20th century South Africa. The Afrikaners are unique in the world in that they successfully successfully mobilized ethnic entrepreneurship without state assistance, rising up to eventually control the South African government for almost 50 years and then yielded power without military defeat. Guillermo takes a hard analytical look at the Afrikaners' fortunes over the past 100 years. Topics range from political parties' use of the colored vote, ethnic entrepreneurship, Bantu education and the Rubicon speech to Nelson Mandela's relationship with the last Afrika- with the last Afrikaner leaders. Finally, he examines the most likely future for this contentious group and the nature of its imprint on South Africa. The final chapter, which is about the use of Afrikaner language in education, especially in universities, is profoundly powerful. The rise and decline of Afrikaans as a public language and the possible demise of the Afrikaners. It's unbelievably powerful as uh, a coda to his history of the Afrikaners. And then the last book I've got time for today is a book by a Nigerian author. He was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2015 for his first book, The Fisherman. Now, his second book, An Orchestra of Minorities, is once again putting Chigozi Obioma on the world's literary map. Umuahia, Nigeria, that's the setting. Chinoso, a young poultry farmer, sees a woman attempting to jump to her death from a highway bridge. Horrified by her recklessness, Chinoso joins her on the roadside and hurls two of his most prized chickens into the water below to demonstrate the severity of the fall. The woman, Ndali, is moved by Chinoso's sacrifice. Bonded by the strange night on the bridge, Chinoso and Ndali fall in love. But Ndali is from a wealthy family, and when her parents subject to the union because Chinoso is uneducated, he sells most of his possessions to attend university in Cyprus. Once in Cyprus, Chinoso discovers that all is not what it seems. Furious at a world which continues to relegate him to the sidelines, Chinoso gets further and further away from his dream, from Ndali and the place he calls home. In this contemporary twist on Homer's Odyssey, in the mythic style of the Igbo literary tradition, Chigozi Obioma weaves a heart-wrenching epic about the tension between destiny and determination. So that's An Orchestra of Minorities by Chigozi Obioma, published by Little Brown. It's a great story set on the African continent between Nigeria and also the island of Cyprus. And it is a very, very powerful story. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Good Shabbos.